Hello and welcome to Player One Bias. I'm John Wick, driving my 1969 Mach 1 Mustang. And I'm Player Two, the King of Cool, Steve McQueen, riding around in my Bullet Mustang. So this episode might be a little bit different if you couldn't tell from our intro. Uh, we aren't we aren't hitting on video games or anything in the nerd kingdom that we usually do. Uh, and on this episode, we're going to be talking about the Ford Mustang, uh, a model of car that both of us really really like. I think ever since our childhood, uh, and something that does have a little bit of impact on our lives. So kind of hate to switch it up on you guys, but I figure if we like it, I'm sure there are other people that do as well, uh, and we'd love to talk about it. Yeah, I think the car enthusiast culture, in a way, is very similar to a lot of these like nerd media cultures. Uh, and there's probably some crossover these days. Absolutely, yeah. I mean, you can be a nerd about anything, right? It doesn't have to fall into the normal categories that people assign to being a nerd. You can be a car nerd or whatever, and I, I definitely think we fit into that as well. So the Mustang is one of the longest-running nameplates in the world. Uh, and it's one of the longest consistently produced sport cars. Um, so for those of you that don't know, a nameplate uh, is just a, a single consistently named car like the Mustang or like the Camaro. Uh, and the Mustang is definitely one of the longest running in the world. Uh, it was originally based off uh, the platform of the second generation American Ford Falcon. Um, so I know a lot of people who might be our age probably aren't aware of the Falcon. Uh, started a long time ago, 60s, 50s. Um, but it was definitely a car that lasted with Ford for a long time. Yeah, they still produced that in Australia for a very long period of time. In fact, up through like 2017, I think the Falcon yeah, yeah. was still active. Absolutely. So the original Ford Mustang was built in 1962. Uh, it was called the Ford Mustang One, and it was a two-seater concept race car that was used for a demonstration at a Formula One Grand Prix race in America. Uh, and, and for this concept car, the lap times were only slightly off of uh, the lap times for an F1 car at the time. Yeah, that's been a pretty impressive showing. And this is a very wild concept car. You and I have both seen it, actually, uh, in the museum. Yeah, yeah, that was, that was really cool to see. It's, it's basically a wedge, right? Uh, convertible, open top, the roll bar, and it's layout is pretty radically different from the classic Mustang pony car layout now. Uh, it was actually mid-engined. It had a little four-cylinder engine behind the driver, mid-engine rear-wheel drive, some pop-up headlights. Pretty wild concept car. Yeah, it was it was really cool, though. It definitely uh, definitely caught some eyes. It was something that, that was kind of new and unique at the time. Um, and the fact that it was, you know, pulling these lap times... Uh, was pretty crazy. Although F1 cars were certainly much different then than they are today. Yeah, this is something Ford has kind of always done when they want to get people excited about a new product. Uh, they turned to racing. That really worked in their, you know, the 40s, the 50s, the 60s. Pretty much, I mean, even today, there's still a little bit oh, of yeah. that going on. But this was sort Absolutely. of their, their one-two punch. 
That's how you get enthusiasts or people who like just, you know, who doesn't like a cool car, right? That's how you get people excited is, oh, it's fast. It has a race car version. You know, you can, you can get people into a car that way. So this car evolved into the 1963 Mustang II, uh, which was a four-seater concept car, and, and Ford was using this to gauge how the public would react to the vehicle. Uh, if the Mustang would be, uh, if it would be, in, if the public would be interested in it, if people would buy it, that kind of stuff. Um, so the production of the vehicle began on March 9th, uh, 1964, in Dearborn, Michigan. Hometown, baby. <laughs> yeah. I don't know about hometown. Maybe no. where you live now. Though. Yeah. Well, and funnily enough, uh, the Mustang is still built in southeast Michigan. It's it's a few miles uh, further south now in Flat Rock, but it's been nearby for its entire life. It's pretty yeah, neat. yeah. It's it's been a a Michigan and American born bred vehicle uh, for for its entire production. So the first production vehicle was introduced to the public at the New York World Fair on April seventeenth, nineteen sixty four. Uh, and later was dubbed as the 1964 and a half Mustang by most of the enthusiast community. Uh, and this car was only available as a convertible or as a coupe. So it was dubbed 1964 and a half uh, because it wasn't released on the normal car release cycle. Um, instead of being released later on in the year, it was released about September. Um, and it was slightly different than the cars that were released in 1965. So they, they kind of needed something to differentiate those models by. So it's called the 1964 and a half. Uh, so these minor updates um, to the vehicle were made in August of 1964 for the normal release of the 1965 models. And, and that is what denotes the difference between the 1964 and a half and the 1965 models. So the 1965 release in the Mustang was the most successful launch for Ford since the Model A in 1927. Uh, so this was definitely a revolutionary vehicle for the Ford uh, sports car line and for obviously just in general. Yeah, it's uh, and hard so the to Mustang come up with a product that's like that universally popular. Yeah, I, I mean, obviously it happens, but those are the things that that we as like a culture and as like a society are super aware of like the iPhone or things like that. Right. So this created the classification of the pony car as uh, player one there mentioned earlier. Um, so the pony car is characterized as a sporty coupe, uh, or if you know, you are an American coupe, uh, with a longer hood and a shorter rear deck. And a big part of that pony car style or image as well is typically like a big loud V8 engine. So this pony car classification and the Mustang uh, gave rise to many similar cars uh, in this same style, such as the Camaro, the Firebird, uh, the Plymouth Barracuda, and a new and revamped Dodge Challenger. So the Mustang uh, was created by executive stylist John Najar. Probably not going to say that right. Yeah, I have no idea. Uh, and, is, <laughs> and is credited uh, by Ford to having created the name Mustang as well. Um, so this is where we get into a little bit of argument with the history of the Mustang. So Ford specifically uh, credits John. Uh, he was a fan of the World War II fighter jet, the P-51 Mustang. Uh, and he co-designed the first prototype of the Mustang I in 1961 with stylist Philip Clark. However, there is an alternative story to where the, the, the name Mustang uh, came from. Uh, so it is attributed to Robert 
Eggert, uh, a Ford division market research manager, uh, saying that he first suggested the name. He was a breeder of quarter horses and received a book from his wife called The Mustangs, which gave him the idea for suggesting uh, the name for Ford's new concept car. So the actual designer for the car uh, preferred names other than the Mustang, such as Cougar or Torino. Uh, and they even actually developed an ad campaign for the name Torino uh, because they thought that they were going to go with that over the Mustang. And they do end up using the Cougar name later for essentially the same vehicle. Um, once the Mustang is established, Ford kind of has a, a Mercury version. A Mercury is sort of a uh, slightly classier brand with version of Ford vehicles. So Cougar does end up getting used at some point. Yeah. And actually I brought this up with our dad who uh, was alive at the time of the Cougars release, unlike the two of us. Uh, and he remembers it being a pretty awesome and stylish car. Yeah. The original Cougars are really neat. The, the like late nineties, early 2000 ones. Eh, not so much. <laughs> I think I think we can say that about a lot of cars at this point. Yeah, it's true. <laughs> so uh, the the owner or um, the, the descendant of Henry Ford at the time, Henry Ford II, uh, preferred the name T-Bird II uh, for the Mustang. Obviously, uh, that did not happen. And this is kind of an interesting trend you see in the automotive industry where certain people want to reuse nameplates or, you know, because the original car was successful. Right, the Thunderbird was a popular sports car. So oh, here, Henry Ford is like, well, why don't we capitalize that on, we've got this new vehicle, why don't we relate it to the Thunderbird? Um, some people like that, but you can also really bring in a lot of like conflicting opinions from enthusiasts or whatever. If the car is different than the original in some way, then people will feel like, oh, you're like ruining the name, you know? Uh, and so that's always like a tricky balance, like marketing balance you have to handle. Absolutely. It's uh, uh, hard to please everyone at any given time. So you kind of have to pick and choose your battles with who you want to please and how big that population is and stuff like that. Yeah, it's usually the people who actually buy cars uh, are the population you end up pleasing. Right, right. Uh, so Eggert uh, was responsible for Ford's research on potential names, and he did add Mustang to the list tested by focus groups. So uh, kind of more on that story of how they chose the name. Eggert added it, but did he come up with it? You know, who knows? Um, so Mustang did the best in focus groups by a wide margin. Uh, and I can definitely see why. You know, Cougar, not bad. Uh, Torino, I mean, there was the Grand Torino, which was a pretty awesome car. But I, I, I definitely think I would have picked Mustang too. So the name could not be used in Germany uh, as it was owned by Krupp a manufacturer of trucks. Uh, Ford refused to buy the name Mustang and the rights to produce and sell them in Germany um, for $10,000. So the Mustang was sold as the T5 in Germany up until 1978. Uh, interestingly enough, too, they also uh, had difficulty with the badging. Um, oh, really? Yeah, so I guess I say difficulty, but basically they, they couldn't agree on how to designate T5. Like, did it have a T hyphen five or was it just T five? <laughs> so that like, th there's different T five badges on like, you know, like the steering wheel would maybe have the hyphen and then like the bodywork. That's pretty or cool, something man. Like that. Yeah. <laughs> a little fun so the Mustang logo. Yeah, yeah. Yeah. The Mustang logo to go on with, um, 
uh, to go on with the name, uh, is portrayed as a right-to-left running stance. Uh, so Mustang moving right-to-left, uh, denoting that this is a wild and untamed horse as opposed to the left-to-right running stance, which is adopted by racehorses. Interestingly enough, this is also the only Ford car that typically does not employ the blue oval with the Ford badging on it. Yep, uh, my Mustang's got no blue oval on it. It's got the Mustang badge, it'll say Ford, uh, but yeah, they've decided no blue oval. Yeah, and, and this was pretty consistent uh, for most of the models. The only ones that I'm really aware of that actually have the blue oval on it, and it was a short period, was in like 1984 uh, when the Fox Body Mustang was Yeah, I was going to say, I think I've seen it on some Fox Body ones, and that's about it. I think all the other Mustangs uh, only had the Mustang logo and did not have not have that, that blue oval. Um, so the first Mustang produced uh, for commercial uses and uh, you know, for the, the normal consumer base, the public to buy. Uh, so Mustang number one was accidentally sold to Canadian pilot Stanley Tucker uh, when it was on show at a dealership in Canada and Tucker convinced the salesman to sell it to him. So this is kind of an interesting story that I didn't really know about, but basically he went in uh, Mustang number one, which like they usually keep to like put it in a museum or like, you know, something like that. If it's a significant car, if not later, sure. you know, like whatever. Um, and no one's hanging was on to the ch- first Chevy Cavalier. Right, right, right. Uh, but it was making a tour around the United States and some dealerships in Canada. And, um, you know, just as a show off, get people interested in it. So they'd buy it when the pr- real production vehicles really started rolling out. And dealerships started, you know, picking them up as interest grew. Um, and he just kind of kept talking to the salesman saying like, hey, I really like it. I think it's awesome. I'll buy it from you like right here, right now. Just like, let me have it. And eventually the salesman gave in uh, and sold him the car, even though he was definitely not supposed to. Yeah. So it took forward two years uh, and the promise of the one millionth Mustang, uh, which is also a white convertible, like number one Mustang, um, to be able to get the car back from uh, Stanley Tucker and be able to, you know, put it in a museum and keep hold of it. Um, as by that point, uh, it was such a prolific vehicle that, you know, they wanted to be able to keep that history. Yeah. I wonder if that so, salesman is still around. <laughs> yeah. I, I mean, I'm sure he was at that time. Um, I don't know how much longer though. Yeah. Maybe he made so, lots of money. Maybe it was a good sale. I, I mean, probably not. Oh. I'll sell it for asking price. I think I, there wasn't a lot. It's not like he was, you know, under the table, I'll give you an extra $10,000, even though the car only cost 2000 sure. you know. <laughs> I don't think any of that happened. So we get into the first generation of the Mustang, uh, and the Mustang is split up kind of into five generations, really, uh, moving on uh, into the six now, I think. Um, so the first generation of the Mustang is typically denoted with uh, 1964 to 1973 models. And this is where we get kind of one of our big players in um, the Mustang uh, design and, and just kind of history, uh, Lee Iacocca. Um, so he championed the project as a Ford division manager. And then he had Donald Frey as the chief engineer that oversaw the T5 project, um, also the Mustang, same thing. Uh, and so this car was a two-seater mid-engine roadster. Um, and so... 
that was kind of the original plan. Obviously, that's not what we see in the first Mustang. Uh, it's claimed that they abandoned that two-seat design as a result of the sales of the Thunderbird increasing when they changed it uh, to a two-plus-two-seater. So those are the convertibles uh, that you kind of see that um, it, it, it is technically four seats, but the only thing you're fitting back there is like a baby, which isn't safe. Uh, but the, the really, really small second row of seats that you almost have to like sit on top of the car to be in. Yeah. And it's usually two doors as well. Uh, yes. In this yeah. designation. And this is something you so, see a lot in automotive industry. Like people do want something sporty, but they don't want a actual race car. They don't want to sacrifice like that much comfort and usability. Right. Right. And you'd be Everyone surprised how like much a... those two extra little seats really matter. Yeah. Everyone wants a smooth ride, you know, you don't want, uh, nowadays, right, you want a sporty car, but you want something that you aren't going to feel every bump in the road, right? Well, like a race car, like you want to be feeling that for like handling and stuff like that. And you want a radio and, and some noise. Air conditioning. Material. Yeah, exactly. Yeah, <laughs> yeah. Uh, so the 1965 model, which uh, was the, the first production model, uh, enclosed the trunk in a sweeping exterior line known as a fastback, uh, which is similar to the Corvette Stingray and the Jaguar E-Type. And in my opinion, this is hands down unquestionably the best design or best um, style of car in general. Like I know some people like the convertibles or like in the in the Fox body days they had some notchback designs, but the fastback is the way to go in any sports car. I definitely agree. Yeah. I there are other designs I like, but fastback uh for sure the one I like the best. So the advertised listing price of the original Mustang was two thousand three hundred and sixty eight dollars. I know if I could get a Mustang uh for that cheap today, uh that would be amazing. You can, dude. Just fire up Craigslist. Uh, <laughs> it, it it will be a Fox body one. I think that's the cheapest generation of Mustang right now. Anything older than Probably. that's a classic. Anything newer than that uh, makes actual power. Um, right, right. So right. it won't run. Uh, the guy won't have the title or the key, but you can get a Mustang for that price, I bet. Hey, man, that's that's all you need is the car. I don't need any of the rest of that junk. <laughs> right. Speaking on the fastback, though, um, definitely, uh, I don't know if you remember, but there was a time in my life where I loved the Chrysler Crossfire. I don't know if you remember this. Mm -hmm. Yeah, definitely, definitely fit in that fastback line, man. I mean, yeah, so I'll say this. I think that car is uglier as a convertible than a fastback. <laughs> so I stand I by my statement. <laughs> okay, all right, all right, all right. Fastback is uh, always the best option. I have to agree with that with Mustangs, though. I can't say I'm a fan of the convertible Mustangs, man. They don't do it for me. Yeah, it's just, they look less aggressive, I, you know. Yeah, for sure. So the Mustang, uh, as designed, uh, they took familiar components from other Ford cars and, and kind of combined them in order to create the Mustang. Um, so much of the interior, chassis, suspension, and drivetrain were already in the Ford Falcon and the Ford Fairlane. Um, and this use of similar... Uh, f familiar and similar components shorten the learning curve for production workers uh, while also allowing dealers to pick up the Mustang without uh, them without requiring them to add additional parts to their inventory for uh, you know any kind of maintenance that was that was required uh, so this is huge this um, which they definitely kind of pick up uh, now and, and, and is very big now uh, yeah definitely but this was kind of revolutionary for that time frame 
uh, and the fact that you were able to get a sports car uh, and something that was awesome and made power compared to all these like family saloons um, and, and then still be able to have that, that shortened uh, gap for dealers to pick it up and allow them to sell a lot of the vehicles. Yeah, Ford ha- kind of has a history of simplifying and innovating like the manufacturing process and like the parts business. Uh, and like you, like you mentioned, this was a big deal at the time. Uh, and now it's like standard practice, right? Like you try to have as many common parts across platforms as you can. Because uh, that just helps so much when, in terms of like cost of parts and part availability and what plants you can build it at. Yeah, absolutely. I mean, that hitting on, you know, Ford, right, started basically the assembly line. Right. Henry Ford revolutionized that entire process and they, they continue to, you know, kind of do it throughout their history. Um, and, and this is really the one of the main reasons that the Mustang is such an iconic vehicle and, and still lasts to today was through its origin. Uh, it, it was selling like crazy and allowed, you know, to just continue on through this uh, easy uh, shipping out to dealers, easily getting maintenance, all that kind of stuff. And I think that's a big reason why it was so successful is because all these decisions helped keep the costs down. And so you could have, this could be in the hands of like any family uh, because Absolutely. it wasn't like this custom built sports car. Right. And that's, that's kind of the legacy of the Mustang. Really. It's not the fastest car. It doesn't have the most horsepower, although there are models that are pretty crazy. It, it, it really is like every man's sports car. Right. That's why you see all the cars and coffee jokes and stuff now. Like it's the cheapest way to get like a ridiculously powerful rear wheel drive car. So right. a lot of yeah, people, absolutely. that's their first experience with like a sports car. Yeah. Yeah. So the original sales forecast uh, for this Mustang was 100,000 units, uh, which was surpassed in under the first three months, which is a, an extremely short time frame, especially in 1965. So in that first model year, there were 418,000 units sold and 1 million were built in the first 18 months. So there were some pre-production models uh, that were sent to be used in the 1964 James Bond movie Goldfinger. Uh, And this kind of starts a little bit of history of the Mustang being included in Hollywood and film and pop culture uh, and, and, and really served to increase the Mustang's popularity even more. Right. I mean, if you're seeing James Bond driving a Mustang uh, or as we mentioned in the intro, Steve McQueen or whatever, I mean, popularity is going through the roof. You're seeing this cool actor dude in it in this sweet, powerful car. Who wouldn't want that? Yeah, Even today, like this first generation of Mustang is kind of like the iconic. If they're going to give someone a cool muscle car, there's a lot of times it's a Mustang. It pops up in so many random movies. Right, absolutely. Unless you're going like you know into some of the foreign stuff. If it's if it's an American car and if it's like a cool sporty car, it's typically the Mustang. So on top of that, uh, you also have Sh- uh, Carroll Shelby. So he was a race car driver that that was kind of known. His thing was he would take Ford engines and then put them in his car uh, and, and build a car around it and then race it. Um. So he made the 1965 uh, Shelby GT350. And so this uh, further served to increase this, this awesome sports vehicle that now had some pretty crazy performance behind it. Um, this was a car that, that was super powerful. It looked awesome. 
uh, and really it, it kind of was a race car. Like there, there's no, at, at that point in time, it wasn't like, Oh, just high horsepower. This thing was pretty much like the race car at the time. Um, he also made a batch, not only for Ford, uh, but for Hertz, the rental vehicle company. Uh, and there are countless stories of race abuse and parts theft in these things. Yeah, this kind of starts the long-standing tradition of Hertz Mustangs. Like, we still make special Hertz edition Mustangs today. Uh, and they're always the 5 lead, you know, the V8, the 5 liter. Um, and, you know, everyone's heard that joke. The fastest car you've ever owned or driven is a rental car. Uh, and so Mustang rental cars are just kind of like nightmare, you know, Grand Theft Auto sprees people putting their foot down and going crazy because it's a rental and it's a fast car and you can do what you want. Yeah. I can't say I'm surprised. You're not worried about the longevity of the engine or, you know, whether you're going to have to change the oil or if you're gonna have to buy another set of like $200 tires or whatever. Yeah. So this uh, 1965 model was raced by Carroll Shelby uh, with his modifications. And then it, it was classified as the GT 350. So in 1965, one of the selling points of the Mustang, uh, besides all the other stuff we've mentioned with, you know, it being cheap and fast and fun, um, was its customability. Uh, so to this day, some classic Mustangs are still put on sale as one of one cars. Um, so like now a, a Mustang might be like one of 2 million or whatever, you know, or two of 2 million. Uh, so this one of one car was the defining characteristic kind of being like a particular Mustang is the only red car that also has black stripes, but that also doesn't have a radio. Uh, so the custom ability that they allowed you when you were ordering a Mustang was you could pretty much add or delete anything. Unlike nowadays where you have to buy like a package with a car and you kind of get these standard sets of things back then. And when they you know, first released it, it was, okay, do you want this? Yes or no. Do you want this piece? Yes or no. Uh, and so you get these, quote unquote, one of one cars. Yeah, this was before people figured out lean manufacturing. I can only imagine like the nightmare if this was implemented in like a modern car plant now. That would be nuts. Yeah, it's, there would be so many misbuilt cars. It'd be inevitable. And- and there would be the costs would go through the it would be yeah that that would be absolutely bonkers. So then we get into the 1967 and the 1968 models, uh, and this was considered the Bullet era, uh, as made popular by Steve McQueen in the movie Bullet. Uh, so this ends up kind of becoming an iconic moniker with a specific style, uh, specifically a fastback with the signature bullet green color. Uh, and it was originally powered by a 6.4 liter big block V8. Yeah, they also usually have uh, that cue ball shifter. That's a very right, like, right. iconic part of it. Um, and Ford has made several other bullet models since that point. And they're always that green V8 fastback. I think the most recent one being released in 2018, right? Yep. Yeah, one came out. It was out of year 2018. So yeah, last year. Yeah, dude, that's nah, that'd be a that'd be a fun car to to have and drive. Although, not cheap. No, they were fast. They actually had some concerns about because uh, they put like some meteor tires on that, and so it was almost performing too well compared to some of their other, you know, uh, trim levels essentially, <laughs> which is in a way a good problem to have. Oh yes, yeah, I I don't ever think that's a bad problem. So the 1968 uh, Shelby was the first to, mat, uh, to, to, to feature a snake emblem to match the name. 
Um, so these Shelbys were typically called Shelby Cobras, um, especially starting with the 1968 model, uh, and they did add that Cobra emblem to match it. So by 1969, uh, the Mustang was seen track time due to the 428 Cobra Jet. Um, so this early on, the Cobra Jet uh, was absolutely the fastest um, Mustang uh, out of their entire production line. Uh, it had 335 horsepower at 5,600 RPM and 445 pound-feet of torque at 3,400 RPM. Also in 1969, the Boss 302 was introduced, uh, and, and that is uh, cubic centimeter capacity. Uh, or cubic Cubic inches, yeah. That's approximately uh, five was, liters. Right, right. Uh, you get, you know, the 302 and the 429 and stuff like that. And, and 302 is typically what they consider that 505 liter, um, although there is some variation in that. Uh, so this Boss 302 was introduced, and, due to, uh, and, and they introduced it due to the engine production requirements by NASCAR. Uh, you had to have a production vehicle that had the same engine in it, so they were producing this so they could drive that car in NASCAR. Uh, and for this reason, the Boss 429 was also sold. Yeah, that's a disgustingly 19- large engine. Yeah, that's uh, you, you, you're getting like truck capacity there. It's it's getting real big. So in 1969 to 1970, the Mach 1 stylization was introduced for the first time, uh, and and this is something that definitely has some impact now. Uh, Mach 1's still a name that kind of floats around. Um, in 1970, Carroll Shelby had a fallout with Ford and did not return to make the Shelby Mustangs until 2005 at the company's 100th anniversary and the launch of the fifth generation Mustang. Um, so this was kind of crazy. They still produce, um, not Shelby's, but they still produce these higher level, you know, sporty race cars. Uh, and they don't ever call them Shelby Cobras, um, which is a differentiation that like, if you aren't really aware of the Mustang, kind of what goes on with it, you may not really pick up on. You may like the, the, the high power Mustangs are still essentially the Cobra. They just didn't have that Shelby name on them. Yep. So as the first generation continued, the Mustang began to grow in size, but not necessarily power while keeping the fastback and aggressive styling. So from 71 to 73 under the direction of S Bunky Nudson, yeah, uh, the Mustang went from, <laughs> yeah, not easy to say, not the greatest name. Although, you know, I mean, 1970, maybe he was a cool cat. I don't know, man. Sure. The Mustang went from speed and power to fat and lazy. Uh, it's kind of the general description that's put on with it. It was restyled and grew larger in every direction and weight uh, to match the demand in the market for more of a luxury car. Uh, they kind of say this is a styling misadventure, which resulted in a sales decline and Iacocca, kind of one of the... The big minds behind the Mustang being quoted as saying, the Mustang market never left us, we left it. So with the changes that were made based on fuel economy and emissions, that fat, heavy Mustang uh, only had a 800, or sorry, 888, 88 brake horsepower engine, which is tiny. You have you, you have motorcycles that have more horsepower than this. That's pretty anemic. I don't think I've ever driven a car with that little horsepower. Um, no, even, you know, like your Honda Accord, right, has like 130. And, you know, this generation of cars kind of got hit with a double whammy. This happened across the lineup. So not only were there like stricter like fuel regulations and emission regulations, uh, but also at the same time, uh, prior to this, 
manufacturers were rating their horsepower just based on like at the engine crank so what the engine could produce and you have losses through your transmission and your axle and everything uh so at this point they also had to switch to brake horsepower or wheel horsepower measurements essentially uh, which would factor in those losses so there's like this double whammy where you saw cars lose like 100 horsepower overnight essentially yeah that's crazy that's uh I obviously hit the Mustang pretty hard, especially with those weight changes and stuff, but also throwing in that the, the losses down the line, that uh, that really throttles it, man. So to kind of conclude our discussion of this first generation of Mustang, I'll just briefly hit on some of your different powertrain options available. As we mentioned, like the, customize, the uh, customizable options you had for these cars were kind of through the roof, and along the same line, there were probably... 12 or 13 different V8s that were offered in the Mustang at this generation at various points in time. Um, but there was always some level of V8s available, right? Starting from the 289 all the way up to that ginormous Boss 429. Uh, there was also, for your more economy-minded folks, there was what they called the Thrift Power Inline 6, uh, which is a terrible engine name, uh, <laughs> in my opinion. Yeah, if you if you have a sports car, having thrift in the name is probably not the way to go yeah. at any point in time. Uh, this it's interesting. This is an i six, right? Which are not very common in a lot of American cars, and I think this probably I'm sus- I suspect this is part of that carryover from the Ford Falcon, uh, right, which had yeah, an i six yeah. for a very long time after this as well. And of course, you had um, manual transmissions and automatic transmission options, depending on. Uh, you either had a three or four speed, depending on which engine choice and which year you picked. So moving on into the second generation, uh, which we're looking at 1974 to 1978, uh, a very, very short generation, um, kind of in the spectrum of everything that we're going to see here. So Lee Iacocca, one of the original minds behind the Mustang, became president of Ford in 1970. And to kind of get the Mustang back on track, as it was kind of his baby, uh, he ordered a smaller, more fuel-efficient version of the Mustang for 1974. He kind of wanted to bring it back to its roots of sportiness. Uh, It was originally supposed to be based off the Ford Maverick, but ended up being based off the Pinto platform. Uh, which for those of you that don't know, the Pinto was the one with the gas tank at the back that had problems with exploding when it got rear-ended. Yeah, it caught on fire a lot. Yeah. Uh, It was dubbed the Mustang II. uh, Introduced September 21st, 1973, just two months before the oil crisis. Uh, And and this was big, right? Because we're having a smaller, more fuel-efficient vehicle, uh, which not necessarily related to the oil crisis because it hadn't happened yet. Uh, definitely allowed the Mustang to continue through at this time period, which was really, really big. Yeah, really lucky um, timing, honestly. Yeah, yeah, absolutely. Um, so it, it was able to compete with more fuel-efficient imported sport coupes, uh, which meant it was able to stay on the market and people were still able to buy it. Um, this was an early example for the big three, uh, which are the three main American manufacturing uh, car manufacturing companies based in Detroit uh, on downsizing cars. So despite the decrease in size, new safety uh, emission, safety and emission regulations uh, on the Mustang II did not uh, decrease in weight or power. Um, this generation was not extremely well-loved. Uh, they describe it kind of as the Mustang seemed to be cantering instead of galloping. Um, so despite the Mustang II being seen as one of the lowest points of Mustang history, it did leave a legacy with its front suspension. 
Um, it did not require a strut tower and used rack and pinion steering. Uh, and, and this setup has become one of the most widely used front steering units in the custom car community. Uh, and it's used for modernizing cars and building hot rods. And I think the car community is circled back a little bit on the Mustang too. Like it's now just kind of so old and a little different um, that I see, I saw one at like a Cars and Coffee uh, recently and it actually looked pretty cool. He had it all done up with like louvers and it was all blacked out and everything. And so I think like it can still be tastefully done, but it's definitely not as popular and certainly wasn't at the time. Yeah. It, it, it being, I, the, the small still wasn't popular at the time that, that big luxury car was still kind of popular despite, you know, uh, that not really being a part of being a sports car. Um, and then the fact that it still didn't have a lot of horsepower, it was kind of, I don't know, it, it, it hit a low point. Yeah. It hit a low point in history. Really? It wasn't necessarily like the worst Mustang. That was just kind of a product of the times. I think definitely. Um, now, uh, I guess to talk about the powertrain for the second generation as well. Uh, we, first of all, we have the 2.3 liter Lima inline four cylinder engine, uh, which is pretty slow uh but has a special place in my heart because this is essentially the same engine that has been in like my ford rangers um this 2.3 liter (laughs) four cylinder like from 1973 like ford just kind of updated it and add efi and some other things but that's like basically what's powered my winter beaters for like the last three years so that's pretty awesome yeah uh it's not a sports car engine i'll tell you that much no no it is not it uh it putters around that ranger nicely though so uh, you also had a slightly larger Cologne V6 option, and then, of course, the 302 Windsor V8 uh, built right across the river in Windsor, Canada. And then there was always, again, manual uh, and automatic transmission options. is typically four-speed manual, three-speed auto. Nothing exciting, nothing unusual. And so now we get to the third generation. Uh, we're looking at 1979 all the way up until 1993 which uh, was an important year for us, as we wouldn't have Player One without it. Yep, yeah, 93 was a good year. So this began with the 1979 Mustang being based on the larger Fox platform that was originally designed for the Ford Fairmount and the Mercury Zephyr. Yeah, Ford goes on to use this Fox platform in a ton of vehicles, which, uh, again, kind of helps in terms of like part costs and, and maintenance and that kind of thing. Yeah, and just production, you know, if everyone's working off the same platform, you don't have to relearn a bunch of connection points or, you know, where to put things, all that kind of stuff. So this larger platform allowed for more interior space, trunk space, and a larger engine bay, uh, which is always great for a sports car. Uh, so this model, or this this generation, carried on with the 302 Windsor, uh, Windsor V8, which in metrics was considered a 5 liter, like we touched on earlier. Uh, so this model popula- popularized the 5.0 moniker. And people get a little silly about whether or not it's actually 5 liters. Um, this one wasn't quite 5 liters. I think it was like 4.96 or something like that. Uh, the current 5 liter in today's Mustangs is even closer. It's like 4.996 and then every now and then you still see an angry comment on some internet forum about like i can't believe ford has the guts to call this a five liter you know this little v8 yeah you, you then do a little bit of hairiness with the 302 cubic inches versus the five liter yeah i mean at the end of the day right like the power specs are still real and oh yeah if that extra 0.004 liters 
you know, would have like made or break the car sale for you, you maybe should reevaluate your car buying decisions. <laughs> you know, yeah, to each their own. To each their own. Right. Right. Uh, while this model did not contain the classic running pony, it did have large 5.0 badges on the sides of the vehicle, which uh, can still be seen on the current GT models. Um, and this is this is where it started, and obviously it's worked because they've kept it on for a very long time. So at the time, the Fox body was not well liked by the community, um, but really it has kind of become an embodiment of what the Mustang is about uh, in current times. Um, so it, it is technically a classic car, uh, and, and, and now it, it's enjoyed for being extremely low cost, like we hit on earlier. Uh, but it still makes relatively high horsepower, uh, which is kind of what the Mustang always strove to be about. It was a low cost car that was sports. It was for everybody. Uh, and, and, and you could still have fun and go fast in it. And like I kind of mentioned at the beginning of the podcast, uh, this is probably the cheapest Mustang out there right now if you're going to go find one used. Because anything older than that is like a real classic garage queen, like you're going to pay hundreds of thousands for. Uh, and the newer cars are obviously expensive because they're newer sports cars. Uh, so this is sort of like the bottom of the V. Like this is the affordable. It's also like the lightest uh, generation. Everything just gets heavier from here on out. So it's it's pretty popular in people who want to like build a hot rod or something like that. Yeah, I've, I've definitely seen a couple of them that have... Uh absolutely had some work done on them and they're 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 kind of fun cool cars i'm not gonna say it's like my favorite looking one uh but but there's definitely something kind of like wonky and cool about it uh that i that i really enjoy yeah it's not a very sleek design like some of the other ones um and it it was like a notch back a lot of times instead yeah. of a fastback which as we little boxy was, yeah the fastbacks was the way to go but yeah yeah but it's still i i mean I, I wouldn't say no to driving one. Let's put it that way. They're a lot of fun. I've been in some. Yeah, yeah. yeah. So in 1979, uh, we get the Mercury badge version of the Mustang known as the Capri. Uh, and this lasts up until 1986. In 1983, uh, it remarks the return of the convertible to the Mustang line after nine years of absence. Um, and in response to poor sales and increasing fuel prices, Ford developed a variant of the Mazda MX-6 to replace the Mustang. Uh, this was a questionable decision, I will say. Uh, enthusiasts were not happy at all uh, and, and complained massively. There was a ton of backlash, uh, eventually making Ford change the name of that vehicle from Mustang to the Probe, uh, which was released in 1989. Uh, can't say Probe is a great name either. Yeah, Probe is maybe one of the worst car names ever. <laughs> yeah, so bad. It, I mean, just not something you want your car to be called ever. And for those of you maybe not familiar with the Ford Probe because of its relatively short-lived place in the lineup, or the Mazda MX-6, uh, they're front-wheel drive-based kind of economy cars, uh, or at least you know, the Mazda was, and so that was the source of a lot of the enthusiast anger. Uh, you know, the pony car classically is a uh, V8 rear-wheel drive, two-door coupe, uh, and the Probe, while being a two-door coupe, was going to be a front-wheel drive base, and it doesn't have a V8, so uh, there are people upset about that. Now, I actually... And the reason... Go ahead. The, uh, the reason that they were going to be based on off of the Mazda MX-6 was at this time, Ford was actually producing vehicles for Mazda. Yeah, they America. were partnered. 
Yeah. They built these in the Flat Rock assembly plant, so Ford acquired that from Mazda, and that's actually where the, the Mustangs have been built for the last uh, 12 years now or something like that. Um, yeah, yeah. And there actually is, so I worked there briefly uh, for, well, seven, eight months. Uh, my job took me out to that plant every day, and uh, there was an old Mazda MX-6 just, like, sitting in the corner of a parking lot. <laughs> I was still <laughs> kicking around, like, no one had just towed that's it away. That's pretty awesome. Yeah. Um, and I don't want to get too far off topic here, but actually, the probe looked pretty cool. Uh, you wouldn't have guessed. Like, it, it could have been rear-wheel drive just based on the proportions. Um, and it was kind of this stylish car for 90, you know, like that 90s-era styling. Uh, but it was kind of a piece of crap. Its reliability wasn't all that great. It wasn't that fast, et cetera, et cetera. Yeah, yeah which uh, assumedly is why uh, still not a part of the line. So, so in 1987, uh, it received a restyling and a visual update uh, that carried on until 1993, the end of the third generation. So and then I want to just take a second to talk about the powertrains here as well. Uh, you still got that faithful 2.3 liter four-cylinder banging out some power, although they did make some turbocharged versions, uh, which were kind of an interesting experiment. 80s turbos are hilariously... Uh, strange with their power surging in at like certain rpms and stuff yeah um, not very efficient yeah no yeah it's certainly not efficient uh and then there was various there was some inline sixes they were later replaced by a couple different sizes of v6s uh they had a 4.2 liter v8 for a while and then of course the big five liter windsor v8 with the five liter badges was sort of like the top of the engine you want um see the introduction of five speed manuals and four speed automatics here as well and this is also the last generation of Mustang to be carbureted, and most of the model years had electronic fuel injection. So now we're getting on to the fourth generation, which, uh, if you're our age, are, are kind of the first Mustangs that you ever really saw uh, that, that were, you know, current, obviously, uh, and, and it's definitely what you saw the most of. And so fourth generation was 1994 to 2004. Uh, so in November 1993, the Mustang received its first major update in 15 years. Uh, the codename for this project was SN95. Um, it was based on an updated version of the rear-wheel drive Fox platform known as the Fox 4. Uh, it was styled by Patrick Schiavone? Schiavone? I don't know. And for the first time since its introduction, there was no notchback coupe uh, model produced. Uh, this was a fastback for sure. Or not quite, but close enough. The Windsor was finally dropped in this generation, uh, so we're kind of losing that iconic 302 5-liter Windsor V8. Um, it was restyled in 1999 with Ford's New Edge styling, uh, which is kind of classified with sharper contours, larger wheel arches, and creases in the bodywork. So this was just kind of an initiative that Ford put out to try to uh, make all of its new cars look a little bit better, uh, and in that you know late 90s, early 2000s, kind of revamp their look. Um, the Mustang was briefly sold in Australia from 2001 to 2002 uh, with pretty much zero success. Um, it was not designed for right-hand drive, which obviously in Australia they drive on the right side of the car. So Ford paid uh, Tick Ford Engineering, uh, an Australian engineering company, $4 million for them to convert 215 of the Mustangs to right-hand drive. So right-hand drive conversions are particularly tricky for a number of reasons. Um, because you have like one dash layout, uh, 
And also the steering rack tends to interfere with things on a certain side of the vehicle. So like currently Ford produces um, the Mustang for a bunch of right-hand drive markets. And there's actually slightly different variations of like the five liter engine for right-hand drive cars because the oil filter on the left-hand drive would actually occupy the same space that the right-hand drive cars need for their steering links. So there's like a little, there's like a lot of work that goes into making them available for both markets. Yeah, when you're working in, you know, if you've ever looked in your engine bay, when you're working in that small cramp space, right, uh, the steering has to go somewhere. So that, that conversion is never easy, either from an interior perspective or, you know, once you're in the engine bay, actually having to get the mechanical parts of the steering to work. Ford made a one-off 6.8 liter V10 supercharged Mustang uh, in Australia uh, that was made for racing. And that thing was a monster. Uh, there was a 2001 release of a bullet, uh, so that Steve McQueen version. We get that green fastback, um, and then the ultimate quote unquote SN95. Uh, so this generation of Mustang was the SVT, uh, or the Special Vehicles Team from Ford Cobra R. It was technically the first Mustang with independent rear suspension, uh, which is crazy. The fact that you know we're getting to what uh, like 99 2001. Uh, and it doesn't have independent rear suspension yet. Well, that was definitely a, a place that Ford lagged behind just a little bit, I think. I mean, the Corvette still has leaf springs in the rear, you know? So that's... Um, yes. Cheaper sports I'm not going to say that's great either. <laughs> well, I guess they're was good a, in spite of it, right? Yeah, that's, that's very true. That's very true. It was a 5.4 liter V8 uh, that made 385 horsepower. And there were only 300 of these made. It was only released in a special red color. Uh, and this is definitely a super, super expensive Mustang now. Yeah, there's actually uh, a guy I work with uh, who owns one of these, and he's trying to sell it on Craigslist right now. <laughs> that is crazy. Right, yeah, right. Good man. luck with that. Yeah. So, uh, in terms of powertrain for this generation, uh, there's kind of your standard baseline V6 option. It was a 3.8 liter S6 V6. Uh, very briefly, you had that Windsor V8 uh, for only about a year, I think, and then it was done away with, and we move on to what Ford named the modular V8. Uh, so it was a 4.6 liter, and they made various updates to it because they used this engine for a very long time in pretty much any car that got a V8. So this was in your Thunderbird and Cougar, uh, this was even in your F-Series uh, trucks as the baseline entry-level option. It was in the Lincoln Town Car. It was in your Crown Vic. It was in your police cars. It was in the Grand Marquis. Uh, it was in the Explorer. It was in everything. Um, and this made, like, decent power, uh, you know, and it was very reliable. And, again, because it was in so many vehicles, like, parts were dirt cheap. You can still today go to a junkyard and, like, Pull another one for 300 bucks and it'll bolt in um yeah absolutely then you had uh there are a couple special cobra editions uh all the way up to a 5.8 liter windsor v8 and of course the 5.4 that was in the cobra we just talked about and uh various five-speed manual options between the different years or four-speed automatics so our, our cousin actually has uh that that 2001 uh, Mustang GT with the 4.6 liter. Um, and this was, I, I think I told you about this. Um, 
after learning how to drive manual in your Ford Ranger yes. for, you know, a total of an hour and a half when I visited you, um, this was the next car I drove that was manual. Uh, and that was after maybe six months or a year of, you know, having driven a manual car once. Right. Um, so and they're very different cars. Like, <laughs> uh, maybe, maybe just a little bit, you know, power, handle, oh, you know, everything. Uh, and so definitely like pulling out of uh, <clears throat> the used car dealerships lot to test drive this car for my cousin uh, because I was in the city it was in and he was not. I definitely like peeled out of the uh, <laughs> of, of the used car lot because I was used to having to give the Ranger that that '97 Ranger a little bit of gas to get going. Uh, <clears throat> you do not have to do the same in a 4.6 liter Mustang. No, that was for sure. This one even had some mods, right? Like it had a different exhaust and header and everything, so it was right. up to about 300 horsepower. Whereas, yeah, like my Ranger was like maybe 80 something, you know, I mean, yes. 90, it was low. Uh, it was a uh, definitely a different experience. That's the worst thing you want to see. Like as a, as like a car salesman, like somebody <laughs> yeah. was like, Oh, I want to test drive your sports car. And then like burns out. <laughs> yeah. I know how to drive a uh, manual. It's fine. Yeah. 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 I, I, I did it that one time. I, I can do it again. <clears throat> and I, suspect, I actually, I, oh, go ahead. I didn't really have any other problems other than uh, peeling out. I mean, yeah, I think, like, if you understand mechanically what's going on, most of learning to drive manual in a given car is just, like, where the clutch engages and how much power you've got at your right foot. Uh, right. So you can adjust pretty quick. But, yeah. Um, I And this kind of my opinion. I think this is sort of going to be, this generation, the SN95, is going to be the next uh, cheapest Mustang. Because, like, people are on the whole Fox Buddy thing now. Um, right, right. And... Right. So I think this is this is sort of like the will be the next most underappreciated generation of Mustang. Um, sm small car, good handling. Uh, 4.6 liter V8 is kind of bulletproof and cheap and makes decent power. So this could be like a fun, you know, like race car. Like yeah, and that, honestly, that's kind of you know what our cousin was doing with it, really. Yeah, um, and it. It definitely follows along with the Fox body too, is like not necessarily being my favorite styling. I don't think it's the best looking Mustang, you know? No, but it's grown on with, me. And I, I like the way it looks better than the Fox body, I think. Um, yeah. And, and I mean, yeah. And, and the fact that it maybe was a little bit less popular also lends itself to the fact that it'll probably be cheaper. Yeah, I think so. So moving on to the fifth generation. Uh, so this is 2005 to 2014. Um, so they completely redesigned the 2005 model, uh, codename S197, uh, and it was based on the new D2C platform. Uh, so this model really echoes the fastback styling of the late 1960s. Um, totally, like, absolutely tried to call back to that original Mustangs. Uh, the Shelby was revived uh, at, at the company's 100-year anniversary here uh, with the 500-horsepower GT500 and the 800-horsepower GT500 Super Snake. Um, they also had the California Special, uh, the Bullet, the Boss 302, and the Cobra Jet. Uh, those were all revived in this generation as well. So they really pulled out all the stops for this complete redesign, 100-year anniversary of the company, uh, and really just kicking out with the Mustang. So in the final years of production, uh, they, they started on this new 5-liter V8 uh, that was nicknamed the Coyote, uh, and it was introduced, 
uh, to bring back the 5.0 moniker and badging. I think this is maybe the most important part of this redesign. Like the more classical style was obviously a big hit, um, but the Coyote engine is like a really good engine. It made significantly more power than the outgoing modular V8. Uh, and this has been a big part of the Mustang's success. Absolutely. Yeah. I mean, how many, how many like random car builds do you know that like throw a coyote at them? Cause they're, they're bulletproof. They're fast. It, yeah. They make, yeah. Like the, the power bump from any other V8 we were selling at the time was huge. Yeah. And absolutely. Uh, they still use a variation of the coyote today in the sixth generation. And it's putting out like 460 horsepower or something, which is like an absurd amount of money and a sub $30,000 or, or excuse me, an absurd amount of power that you can get in a sub $30,000 car. Yeah, that's crazy. They've kind of simplified the powertrain options by this point. They realize basically either get the V8 or you have uh, maybe a tighter budget or a more like a, a efficiency minded or something. So they have a V6 option as well. Uh, and then of course the, uh, Modular V8 was replaced by the 5-liter Coyote, which is a big deal. You see the introduction of 6-speed manuals and automatics as well. So now for the 6th generation. Uh, so this is kind of our current Mustang, 2015 to today, to present. Um, it was unveiled uh, in December 5th, uh, 2013, codename S550, uh, but again, wasn't released till the tw uh, 2015 model year. So in 2015, Mustang finally received an independent rear suspension after 51 years. And this was across all models, uh, so standard. Um, stuck to the retrofuturism modeling of the 2005 design following uh, the fastback routes. Uh, this was also the first generation that was designed for right-hand drive out of factory and sold in international markets. Uh, and this is obviously massive for Ford. Yeah, for sure. Uh, and it's, it's very funny because it does sell well in international markets. Um, so places like India and Britain uh, and like New Zealand even. But the interesting thing is there's all these uh, tariffs and stuff on cars like because they're not being manufactured in India and stuff like that. So it's not actually really in an affordable sports car in a lot of these places. Like so here like a baseline, a base level GT Mustang is like 28 or 29,000 I think starting. Uh, and you can price it up to like 50,000 pretty easily with, you know, getting fancy leather seats and everything. <laughs> yeah. But like yeah. in India, like it like starting is like the equivalent of $60,000. Um, right. So it's like, it's kind of like a luxury car almost. Yeah. Which is fairly contrary to like Mustang and, and like what it means. But it's a, it's a cool enough car that, you know, they get enough sales that way. Yeah, absolutely. Definitely the, the, the reputation from America has carried over. Like the, there's like Mustang fan clubs in like Britain who likes, you know, uh, uh, really one of the famous ones, Richard Hammond, right? He is a huge Mustang yeah. buff. Uh, and, and he obviously, you know, a little bit, maybe a little bit uh, richer than the average individual. Yeah, I'd say. Um, but he's still buying Mustangs. And I kind of mentioned earlier how difficult it is to, uh, you know, have a car in both left-hand and right-hand drive markets. Um, but there's actually some extra details that I know specifically about this generation because I got to see, I was involved in that production for a while. Um, so like in Britain, there are these laws against car theft or, or essentially there are laws requiring manufacturers to build things in a certain way to reduce car theft. So I guess it's very common over there for people to pry open the hood 
uh, with like a crowbar or something, and then actually replace the PCM, like the main computer unit for your car, with like a, a cracked version of theirs that'll let them start it up and drive it away without having the keys. So there's that these crazy. really complicated brackets. Like here in America, there's like a little metal piece that like clamps in, and there's like two bolts that hold it in, and like that's it. It's very simple, easy to put together. Uh, but because of these laws elsewhere, it's this really convoluted like six or seven piece thing that like gets fastened with these breakaway bolts everywhere, so you can't undo it. And then like there's no place for you to fit a crowbar in. And because of like wanting to reduce manufacturing complexity, like Ford just does that on all the right-hand drive Mustangs, whether it's required or not. And so, like, I remember there would be all these issues where, like, maybe someone would install the wrong PCM unit. And then you have to drill out all these breakaway bolts because it's, like, impossible to get <laughs> to and replace. That's crazy. I had no idea. Yeah, there's, like, there's all these crazy extra steps you have to do for foreign markets, like, on top of emissions and everything else. But Right. So what you're saying is, like, American car thieves need to learn from British car thieves and, and, and step it up a notch. Oh, I don't, you know, I don't know what it is. Yeah, I'm not sure why that's, like, less common over here. Or I feel like if you have, like, a crowbar and can pry into the car, like, you can still just, like, connect to the harness or something. I don't know. I'm not a car yeah. thief, so I don't, uh. <laughs> I, you know, maybe I'm yeah. missing out. Yeah, yeah. Uh, so this model was launched in 2014 and a half uh, to commemorate the 50th anniversary of the car uh, in 1964 and a half. Um, so they have the EcoBoost uh, 2.3 inline four, uh, which was popular with enthusiasts as it, it was making more power uh, than the V6 engine that they actually had in it. Uh, and as well as the brand new uh, dubbed Voodoo engine, uh, which was 5.2 liters and V8 with a flat plane crankshaft uh, that was put into the Shelby GT350. So yeah, this Voodoo engine uh, is... Uh, it's it's such a cool engine, man. I got to drive a GT350 for a night, and that's probably the coolest car I'll ever, and the most powerful car I'll, I'll ever get to drive. Uh, and it was so fast. And then this thing revs to, like, 8250. Oh, man. So you can do, like, I did 50 miles an hour in first gear. I think second <laughs> takes you to, like, 84. And it's scary. Like, it just oh. keeps getting louder and louder and louder, and I eventually, like, shift before I get to redline because it's just, like, you can't believe you're still going. That's crazy, man. I can't say I can't say my uh, you know Focus ST quite does that. Yeah, yeah, it's it's a nutty car. It's I mean it's expensive, but like it's so cool. It sounds so good. It's so fast. Um, I was uh, we were actually at the dealership recently getting you know my my Focus ST, uh, and we saw on the price tag uh, at Ford dealerships uh, there is a fuel emissions tax put on that car that was like. $1,200 that you have to pay when you buy the car uh, because it gets such terrible gas mileage. Yeah, I mean, yeah. <laughs> <laughs> That's how you get power, man. You just burn more oh, fuel. Oh, yeah, yeah, don't yeah. get me wrong. Don't get me wrong. If I had that extra $1,200 and, you know, the extra, like, you know, whatever, $50,000, I would have bought that car too. Yeah, for sure. Um, so we start to see actually a lot of new powertrain technology in this generation. So as you mentioned, there was the uh, EcoBoost, that's the turbocharged four-cylinder engine, uh, which puts out like well over 300 horsepower and gets reasonably good fuel economy. So like this is kind of an exciting add, uh, so you don't feel so bad about buying like the economy engine. Uh, in a right, Mustang. yeah, absolutely. It's still, still fast, still fun. Yeah, definitely. 
they had a V6 option as well for a few years. It was dropped in 2018 because it was basically like not as good as the EcoBoost, and it was kind of you know it's like just keep things simple. It you became get, you get two options. Yeah, it became obsolete really. Yeah. Uh, and then of course there's the five liter Coyote V8, uh, and in 2018 you actually see the introduction of uh, you start to see a mix of port and direct fuel injection which is what helps them take that power all the way up to like 460 or whatever that number is. Um, the very cool 5.2 liter Voodoo V8, which we've already talked about. Uh, there's also another version of the 5.2 liter called the Predator, uh, which has been announced for the new Shelby GT500. Uh, and it makes, it's supercharged and makes well over 700 horsepower. Uh, it's six speed manuals. And you also see the introduction of a whopping 10 speed automatic in 2018. It's a lot of gears. Yeah, that that was a cool transmission. Uh, Ford and GM worked on it together, I think. Uh, but that that ten speed automatic transmission is pretty crazy, man. Yeah, so they they basically worked out this deal. Uh, they they kind of co developed it, and and essentially what happened is Ford did a lot of the ten speed uh, rear wheel drive, the ten R development, and Chevy or GM, excuse me, did a lot of work on the nine speed uh, front wheel drive layout one, and they like shared. Okay, just to re- reduce the cost of developing new transmissions yeah yeah and i actually got to drive the 10 speed ones a lot uh because one of my responsibilities was they're they're like learning transmissions so they would have different uh higher ups and stuff like evaluate the cars and like drivability experts and stuff as we were building them and you, the transmissions had to learn how to like shift properly they would get better and smoother and and faster over like you know a few miles so all these new cars are rolling off the plant and they would like they would just need volunteers to like jump in these cars and drive them around to get the shifts to be smoother before anyone evaluated them. So that was kind of a fun little perk of my launch yeah, job man. for the time. Oh no, I have to drive a Mustang around for work. Oh no. Yeah. <laughs> so the most valuable Mustang to ever sell at auction was the 1967 Shelby GT500 Super Snake. At one point three million dollars, uh, which that that's that's a lot of money. Yeah, it's a high price. Uh, although I do have to say, if, if I had to pick my favorite Mustang ever, I would have to go with the nineteen sixty seven GT five hundred. Uh, although they did uh, make kind of, Shelby made kind of like a one off model uh, called the Eleanor, um, and the color everything. That uh, it was a it was a sick car, man. I was a huge fan. Actually, so I don't even know what that looks. Oh, okay, yeah, yeah, yeah. That's a good looking car. Yeah, fastback, powerful. I just everything to me everything you could want in a Mustang. I don't know, dude. I I would probably trade anything to drive the GT three fifty again. I mean, I know these these classic uh, era ones have a cool like classic charm. But like the the new three fifties, you could like drive, and they're so yeah, good. Yeah, that's that's very true. That's very true. So red is the most popular Mustang color of all time. Uh, although black uh, has been starting to take over recently, although it still hasn't quite reached the numbers that that red still maintains. Uh, so I've got a theory on why this is. I want to run it by you. So I think the reason red is declining is because the red that they offer on the Mustang right now. And I think 
uh, in the previous generation too is like not that good of a red color in my opinion. Yeah, it's not like that race red. It's more of like a maroony or not not even. Yeah, so it's um so your the actual color is called race red. Uh, right, right, right. I think it's like too orangey. It's like too light. Yeah, 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 yeah. Um, so they do have the darker like like the ruby red, the, the maroon, which I like. Yeah. Yes, I do like that. So I, I think that's basically just reduced the amount of people buying a red Mustang is because it's like not uh, as cool of a red as you see on other sports cars. Yeah, and I also uh, would not be entirely surprised if that like uh, quote unquote study backlash just something you hear everyone say uh, that says. Cops pull over red cars more. Sure. I totally wouldn't be surprised if that had something to do with it either. Yeah, I could see that being a factor. Yeah. I I, I knew, if, like, you know, for me, the Mustang was always... Yeah, and, and whether that had to do with, you know, our grandfather working for Ford or, uh, you know, we always drove Fords, so those are the ones we saw at dealership, you know, whatever it happened to be. Uh, Mustang has definitely always been, like, one of my favorite cars. Uh w- whether that's you know realistic purposes as oh maybe I could own a Mustang where I'm I'm probably not gonna be buying a Lamborghini you know right but this was definitely a car that was involved in my childhood something I had a poster of and and, and something I really loved yeah I mean I obviously really liked him growing up uh, so much that I bought one and I gotta say I really like owning one so yeah man uh, it's it's a cool car, uh, and even though this is outside of what maybe our typical range of topics was, uh, really glad that we were able to discuss it with you guys. Uh, you know, please check us out on Facebook and Twitter at Player One Bias. Yeah, and as always, we'd like to hear your feedback. So, if you got any suggestions on things you want us to talk about, uh, feedback on episodes we've already done, anything like that, please reach out to us on those channels, and we'd love to hear your thoughts. Yeah, and please uh, rate and review us on iTunes. Leave us a comment. Let us know what you think. All the above. Thanks for tuning in. Yeah, thanks so much.